It will be a pattern all your life. And you will have a big impact on the kingdom by giving. Maybe you don't have a lot of money. Most of us don't. But that is what you're supposed to do. Let me read in uh, 2 Corinthians 9. And it really combines a lot of these uh, things relating to giving and worship. This is verse 13 in 2 Corinthians 9. You understand that the giving in that sense was giving to uh, the poor in Jerusalem. And for Paul, it had a this gospel bringing together of Gentile and Jews. But he says that their giving will be known. He says, by their approval of this service, they, that is people who hear about your giving, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for for all others. And I think it's fascinating that the giving comes from the confession that we have of Christ. So for those of you who are younger, this is not for, just for the adults. Most young people have a disposable income. Some of that belongs to God. It belongs to God. And you should be giving to God now. Don't wait until you have a full-time job. If you get money, some of that is uh, God's. That's enough of my scolding. But really, uh, it, it, is a great, it is a great way to, to express your Christian faith, to give. It's not just an add-on. It, it really is the heart of, of your faith. Let's pray together. Father, we do love your church because we learn about so many things in your church. We learn about you, how great and glorious you are, And this is a whole day to reflect on your grace and your goodness, your mercy, how we love you. We thank you that you are just. We thank you that you are loving, but not just all loving. We thank you that you have anger at sin, but you're not all full of wrath. You love, you have mercy, you have compassion. You're committed to the truth. You love your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. You have no need outside of yourself for anything. You know all things from the beginning. You know us individually. You don't just know our church or our nation. You know me. You know us. And you love us. Lord, we thank you that we can always come to you. You always have an open heart toward us, ears that care about our little lives. It's just amazing to us that you love us. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give to this church. We pray for our pastors, our staff, our elders, deacons, all the volunteers. There's so many hours of work put into Uh, this church by volunteers. We pray that you would encourage them, help them to see the glory of Christ in everything that they do. Lord, we uh, pray for our country. We pray for our president, for his administration, uh, for all the senators and representatives. We pray for our federal, state, and local 
uh, officials, those who are elected, those who are appointed. Father, we, we think of, I think every day we're thinking of Ukraine and this murderous monster that is killing innocent people, and it bothers us so much. So we lift up the people of Ukraine. We, we pray that somehow Russia would be stopped. Uh, we pray for, there must be thousands, millions of Russians who disagree. So we pray for them too. Pray for these other countries that are hosting these uh, Ukrainians that are leaving. And we pray that your will would be done. Thank you for the assistance that is given them by not only governments, but uh, many businesses and all different groups with their heavy sanctions against Russia. Father, we thank you for the ministry that we have in our church, for all the classes that we have. Uh, We're full on Sunday morning, but we also have uh, classes Sunday night where we study the Bible. During the week, we have ministries uh, on the weekends. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to study the Bible in our own language. We are so grateful for that. Lord, we pray for the people that uh, need your help. We pray for uh, Brenda Aris's family. We pray for Mary Reagan's mother. We pray for Linda. We pray for Bob and pray that you would keep encouraging him. Uh, we thank you for Pam, that she is uh, here and getting better. We uh, also pray for the son-in-law of uh, Craig and Janice. Lord, thank you for all of our shut-ins. We pray that you would have your hand of mercy upon them. Uh, for Alyssa, Lord, we pray for the churches in our presbytery, Good Shepherd in Valparaiso and Redeemer in Traverse City. Lord, we also thank you for the Conrads. We, we love the Conrads and pray that your hand would be with them as they train and teach. Thank you for the lives that they've lived, lived and the people that they have helped. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've had in our church. We pray that we'd continue to grow, continue to reach out with the gospel of Christ. And now, Lord, we pray in the prayer that you taught your disciples when you prayed, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be reading beginning in verse 12 and through verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us to repent of our sins, that we would not become so hard-hearted as to not be able to hear your word or to heed it. We pray, Father, that you would continue to use your word to convict us of the truth, of righteousness, of judgment to come that you would continue to show us the righteousness of Christ, that you would show us the wisdom and beauty of your law, that you would reveal to us our own hearts, that we would be able to see how far we are uh, from that perfect standard of righteousness, and that we would cling to Christ by faith. As we hear your word, as we hear the law, as we hear the gospel preach, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Late in the summer of 2016... Great Britain's Johnny Brownlee was leading the pack in the final kilometer of the World Series triathlon in Cozumel, Mexico. But all of a sudden, he began to look very disoriented and started to run in a very strange manner for the oppressive heat of that day had gotten the better of him and his body just started to shut down even as he was running. Even though he had just a a few hundred meters left to go, he could not will himself to get to the finish line. And all of a sudden, like a zombie, he just started to wander off the course into the crowd. And thankfully, his brother, who was also in the same race, was in third place after him. As soon as he caught up with him and saw what was going on, he immediately grabbed him by the shoulder and forced him to run the last hundred or so meters in order to finish the race, but it was really a sad um, spectacle because the entire time he's almost carrying him because he cannot move forward anymore. A couple times where it looks like he's dragging him by the arm, come on, we're going to finish this. And then finally when they get up to the finish line, one runner had passed them and, and won the championship, so the brother had given up his ability to win and then threw his brother across the line first to get second place, and then he finally got third place. Um, As we're looking closely at chapter 12 of Hebrews over these last couple weeks, um, I think it's pretty obvious how the author is emphasizing the running of the race of faith, that if we're going to run, we must persevere in the faith until the end, and that's how we finally reach the finish line. Now, at first, when you look at verses 12 and 13 of our text that we looked at last week, We can apply those things individually to each one of us as Christians about our need to pick up our weak knees and our limping hands and all of these things. But there also is a sense in which these things are meant to be interpreted corporately because they're all in the second person plural in the Greek, which means that they're all referencing not just you as an individual, but you all, or as you guys say here, or the perfect contraction where I'm from, y'all. It's always you all. Uh, that he's referencing in this passage in the Greek. So it's, it's meaning that not just you as an individual must keep running, but you all must keep running together. And so the author gives us one last warning of the dangers of those who do not finish the race because they have fallen from grace, if you will. They failed to obtain the grace of God in some way or another. So this is the actual the fifth time in the book of Hebrews where he's giving these very scary passages, if you will. It's the last time he does this, in which he's warning those in the church that there are some who start the race seemingly, but 
do not finish it. And so he's warning them of the consequences of that and, and pleading with them to cling to Christ by faith, to fight the good fight, and to finish the race. So there are three primary exhortations, I think, in this passage in which he's basically showing, once again, how we are to run. Because the implication is that we must run. We must exude effort of some kind. And here's how we're to do it. Three rules, if you will, for running the race that goes along with some of the ones we mentioned already. Always know that whenever I give you three of anything, there's, just, there's always more. But I'm focusing only on three so that we can all take it in as much as we can. So here are three rules for running the race. Number one, we must run the race with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't run by yourself. That's not the implication that the author of Hebrews has in mind. We must run with our brothers and sisters. Number two, we must run after peace and purity with a passion. And number three, we must run from bitterness and defilement. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. I'm going to start with number one, how we are to run with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, if you look at verses 12 and 13, it's, it's, he's talking about making straight paths to run for our feet. But uh, at first you can interpret that as if you have every one of us is lame and something is out of joint in each one of us. But it can also be interpreted in the plural sense that some of us are stronger than others and that there are some that have become lame through their running, and that we must make straight paths for them so that no one fails to finish the race, that we're making sure that, that there is a, a, a straight course for them as well as for us. Again, this plural uh, you that's used in the Greek. And, and, and that shouldn't surprise us at all, because the entire epistle to the Hebrews is constantly reiterating this you-all concept in the church let me read you just a, a few examples. You can see this again and again in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, verse 13, the author says, Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there's this expectation that we're speaking into one another's lives, looking out for one another. Uh, again, Hebrews 4, verse 1, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Again, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, he says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. There's this constant sense in which there's a danger that someone might not make it to the end, that someone might not persevere, but somehow has failed to obtain the grace of God. So verse 15, where we're beginning this morning uh, from the last time, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, which means see to it that no one fails to finish the race and finally inherit the gift of grace, that final inheritance that is promised unto God's people. See to it that we all finish together, right? Some of you know that I joined um, Planet, Planet Fitness about a month and a half ago, I think, in order to lose some weight. And uh, you can't help but notice the awful colors all over, purple and yellow, and the slogans that they have all over the walls that say, uh, judgment-free zone, and, and no critics here. And I'm glad to tell you, I think that's true. No one has yet pointed out how badly out of shape I am. 
or anything of that nature. But on the other hand, I can also say that no one has really encouraged me to keep going either. No one seems to care whether I show up or not. No one seems to care if I do battle against my flesh on that particular day. Uh, no one's there to help me in the race. And that became also painfully clear to me. The other day I was playing basketball with some of my girls here at the gym, at, at the synchronasium that we're in. And uh, I was jumping up and down, and then I, somehow I wrenched my back. And uh, I came down from the thing, and I could barely walk. And for about two days I was that way. And then I decided I'm going to go to the gym anyway. I'm going to do something. And so it actually was really helpful. I got on the treadmill and went uphill, and it worked itself out. And I was uh, much better toward the end, but I still was sort of hobbling and a little slow. And when I walked out of the gym, I was following the guy who was right next to me on the treadmill. He had gotten off, and then I had gotten off, and we were walking out the door. And he knew I was behind him. And somehow he opened the door, and I just assumed he was going to hold it open for me. And I got to the threshold, and boom! And it made very clear to me again, he wasn't running with me that day. And had no, he was not watching out for me at all. And in fact, I was thinking, you know, if I had for some reason fallen off my treadmill that day, he may have looked over and then put his headphones back on and kept running. I don't think he would have cared so much, you know, in that sense. But sometimes as a church, it might feel that way. But that's not the way it's meant to be. Uh, we are in this together. We are a part of the body of Christ. We're not on treadmills running separately. We are meant to be running together. I remember when I went to Indonesia on one of my trips there, um, I got to see one of, uh, one of an ancient Hindu temple, just magnificent structure, stone, beautiful, ornate, huge. Three that are dedicated to the three highest gods in the Hindu trinity, if you will. And uh, I was baffled by the fact it was so big and so tall on the outside, but when you actually go inside, it's a very small, cramped little space. It's really only big enough for one, maybe two people, if that. And it dawned upon me that in the Hindu religion, there is really no communal aspect to it. You're not there to help other people worship God. You're there to appease your particular God to make sure that your God blesses you on that particular day. It's very me-centered in that sense. Um, they don't have that sense of we are here together as uh, the people of God, if you will. Um, instead, it really is self-centered. And, and, and so Christianity, in opposition to that, is it, it, we're taught that in order to love God, we must love our brother. You can't love God whom you haven't seen if you can't love your brother whom you have seen, right? So there's, there's always this horizontal relationship that we're also working on in order to grow up in our faith and grow up into maturity. And so God purposely puts us together. You notice you're a bunch of here together in a big room, not just a tiny little room in the darkness where we're trying to appease our God. We're learning how to work together, learning how to love one another as part of the body of Christ, as part of the family of Christ, as part of the branches that are all connected to that vine, which is Christ. And, and because we're connected in this way, the Scripture says we ought to look out for one another in the same manner. Verse 15, he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Uh, now, most of you are familiar with the 
Episcopal Church, at least the name of it, the Episcopal Church in America. Uh, the, the word Episcopal comes from this verse and from others that use the same word in the Greek, episkopeo. It's a fun word to say. It basically means to watch out for, to look, look over, to see what's going on in someone else's life. Normally, it's in reference to the episkopos or the bishop or elder overseer of the church. So, in other words, every one of our elders in this church are considered overseers, supervisors, if you will, in the Latin. But the idea that we're watching over God's flock in love. But the way the word is used here is not in reference to the leaders of the church, but rather to all the members that we are to watch out for one another. As we're running our race, we're making sure that no one else is being left behind, that no one else has stumbled and, and has fallen and and, and we just kept running. We ought to be looking out for them. Paul uses similar language in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, when he says, let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but to look out to the interest of others. It's another scopeo. You're looking out, not just looking in. Romans 15, verse 1, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, so we're to look out for them, not just for ourselves. If you're strong, then... It's assumed that you're going to help the weak, right? You're not just going to see the runner who's fallen and then just sort of hurdle over him and keep running. But you try to help the one who is feeble and exhausted and is weary and has lost sight of the finish line, is beginning to slow down or stop running altogether. It's our responsibility to stop and to help them, to put our arm around them, to help carry the load, to encourage them that they can see the finish line, keep running. Of course, that means... We actually have to be looking out for our brothers and sisters in order to do that, particularly on Sundays. Uh, and that's hard. We talk about name tags, and it's important to try to get to know one another. The church is continually transitioning. We're changing. We're, uh, new people have been coming, which isn't a bad thing. You guys get that, right? If you have new people come, that actually, that's a good thing. Um, but you have to sort of get to know the new people. And you have to get to know who they are and know if they're here. It, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, I told you a few weeks ago that there were a number of people that were erased from the role. They hadn't come in a few years. And, and uh, even for those that we didn't erase, uh, there are still, I think, on our role, something like 260 people on our role. But on average, on a Sunday morning, we average about 175. It looks like there may be a few more here today, this morning. But that should tell you we've got like somewhere between 80 to 100 people who are not here on Sunday. Where are they? Do you know? Do you know who they are? See, it's the elders' jobs to know who's in their particular flock who's not here. But do you know? Do you know if maybe someone hasn't been here for weeks and months? Do you know? It's kind of hard to help your brother or sister Christ if you don't know if they're even here. You don't know if they're running. You don't know if they're even walking with the Lord. You have to know who they are. Are you praying for each other? When you pray for yourself, we're taught to pray kingdom prayers. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ as well? Or do you just pray for your family? When I say family, I mean the nuclear family or your own physical blood and flesh, but rather the idea that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we're to pray for one another. So you have to know each other. You have to pray for each other and certainly to reach out to one another, to love 
your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, if in order to run this race, there will always be weaker brothers and there will always be stronger brothers, and sometimes we take turns, which we are. Are you watching out for each other? If you're not, there will be many who will eventually stop running and will walk away from the church altogether. I guarantee you it happens every year. Every year there will be people that will join the church, and I, that baffles me. They go through, I make the membership class long on purpose just to make them endure through that so that they'll get some sense of, okay, well, hey, there's, there's a, a commitment to this in some way, you know. Uh, but then people will go through that, and then still, just all of a sudden, they just slowly fade away, and they stop running. It's, uh, it's our job, all of our job, to, to look out for them, pray for them, speak to them, encourage them in that way. So that's number one. Number two, in addition to running with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're also called to run after peace and purity particularly in the church. Uh, verse 14, the author says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, there's a, an individual way in which you can interpret this, uh, that you know, we're all running for holiness on our own. We're all running for peace with God, if you will. But it, that's not the sense in which the author means it here. He means it in the sense of the corporate peace and purity of the church. That we're Again, it's a plural in the Greek. He's saying strive for peace together. Strive for holiness together in the church of Christ. One of the church vows that we make you say if you join with us, it's kind of worded in a strange way, but it's, it talks about uh, you know, submitting to the government and discipline of the church, but then it explicitly says, and to study the purity and peace of the church. In other words, what we're saying is to pursue it, to strive for that, to look for peace and purity in the church. It's interesting, I've mentioned perhaps, I think, maybe on a few occasions here in the morning service. Uh, in Psalm 23, David says, um, and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And it's interesting, in Hebrew, the Hebrew, the word that is used implies that it's not just following him like a, a lamb follows you, but rather, they will chase me all the days of my life. So even when you are sinning and you're trying to run away from God, goodness and mercy are chasing after you, right? Well, it's the same type of word that's used here in the Greek for strive, when he tells us to strive for peace, to strive for holiness. Literally, the word is used most of the time in reference to persecution. Uh, most of the time, it's used uh, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts to reference that people were striving to kill Christians. They were pursuing them with great passion as the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, was striving to kill Christians. He's saying in this way, you ought to chase down and hunt peace in the church and hunt holiness in the church. Why is that? Because both of these things are so easily forfeited in any congregation and in a very short period of time. It doesn't take long to destroy a church, I can promise you that. So painful to watch church splits. I was sharing with someone yesterday that um, I've had the unfortunate privilege of being the last pastor to preach at two churches right before they dissolved. I was asked as a member of Presbytery to go preach the last sermon at those churches. 
and you have like three or four people sitting out in the congregation and they're angry and they're hurting and they're crying and you're trying to give them some encouragement about the glory of Christ's church. <laughs> That's a tough task. But I can tell you, I, I lived in Pittsburgh for a number of years and uh, Pittsburgh Magazine would actually have... Uh, they were sort of glorying in the fact that so many church buildings, there are a lot of churches in Pittsburgh, had been turned into bars. And there are hundreds of them. Because a church that was thriving at one point, something got a hold of it, division happened, and boom, it was gone. And we're talking within like two years. It's gone. He's saying, strive after, hunt, pursue the peace the purity of the church because the devil pursues the opposite just as passionately. Colossians 3.15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to in one body. Let us not be ruled by our passions, but rather be ruled by the peace of Christ. Otherwise, what happens is the devil is constantly inflaming hostility in the church, building up walls that ought to be torn down. It's the sons of the devil who stir up division, but it's the peacemakers who are called the sons of God. There's always someone that will come in and cause controversy, and we have to know that it's our duty to try to bring peace. Hunt it down. Strive for it. The famous uh, Chinese leader, Watchman Nee, once shared a story of uh, two brothers who were cultivating fields, rice paddies, if you will, on the side of the mountain. If you've never seen these things, pretty fascinating. They'll take the entire mountain, uh, volcanic ash and whatever else, and they'll just build one layer, tier after another, of, of rice. And these two brothers had been watering their fields each day during the heat of the day, but one night some farmers had come that were lower than they were, and had, had poked a hole in their uh, irrigation system so that the water would flow down into their tier instead. And uh, it happened a couple times. They ignored it, but it kept, it kept happening. And, and they were just irate and didn't know what to do about it. So they came to talk to the pastor. And uh, he said to them, you're unhappy because you've not gone the full length. You should first irrigate your neighbor's fields and then irrigate your own. And so the brothers actually listened to his counsel and, and started to water the neighbor's fields down below and then watered their own fields. And to their surprise, their joy returned, and they weren't quite as angry as they used to be. And also to their, their surprise, the neighbors actually came up to them and apologized them for their thievery and actually said to them, if this is Christianity, we want to hear more about it. A great example of what it means to chase down peace because we get so upset over the dumbest of things. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. If possible. Again, not, it's not always possible. Not everyone desires peace. Not everyone is willing to humble themselves. Not everyone is responsible for those things, but we're not responsible for how they react. We're responsible for ourselves. With the help of the Holy Spirit, we're called to pursue peace, to chase peace, to hunt 
peace for the sake of Christ and his church. In the same manner, the author of Hebrews also says we're to chase holiness. Six years ago, one of my favorite authors uh, died at the age of 86, Jerry Bridges. Some of you are reading one of his books now here. Um, In college, I read his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, six times. Now, if, if you ever hear a pastor say he read the same book six times, you might want to take notice of that. Unfortunately, we don't have that book in our library. It's very, very discouraging. So I'm donating it. (laughs) Whoever wants to check it out today, well worth your time. Uh, Jerry Bridges would take very great concepts from theologians who've lived hundreds of years before and simplify them for the average person to see that we don't hate sin like we ought to. We trivialize our sin, and we do not strive for holiness. The Scripture says if we do not strive for it, we will not see God. It makes it very plain in that regard. But again, the, the author here is not merely talking about our own personal holiness, but the holiness of the whole congregation, that we together should strive for holiness in this way, uh, never for the sake of peace alone. You have to understand peace and holiness are not meant to be enemies. They're both meant to be pursued at the same time. However, there will always be some in the church who outrank holiness with peace. who say we must maintain peace at all costs. I want to differ at times. Sometimes if you seek holiness, it disrupts the peace of the church. Why? Because there will always be some who do not love holiness and who do not want to hear about their sin, and who do not want to seek the things of God. They will fight you tooth and nail if you seek to expose sin in the church in any form or fashion. But he says, without it, no one will see the Lord. And he doesn't mean individually. He means the whole church will not see the Lord if you do not disrupt the false peace of the church because of sin. Of course, he's not, again, I have to reiterate it again, he's not saying that we are saved by holiness. He's not saying that, but he's saying that holiness is a consequence of our salvation. It's not the cause. It's the consequence of it. Nevertheless, one of the fruits of salvation and the evidences of salvation is the fact that you now want holiness. You want to pursue holiness. You're seeking it out, not to earn God's favor, but because it actually makes you happy. You remember Eric Little and Chariots of the Fire movie? Uh, I think of that in terms of, he says, when I run, I feel his pleasure. You remember that? I'm not going to do the Scottish brogue. But when you run for holiness, you know the pleasure of God. That's why you do it. You're not doing it to earn God's favor, but you do it because you know it's good. Jesus spoke of the blessedness of the peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount. He also speaks of the blessedness of those who are pure in heart, meaning those who are holy. He says, for they shall what? They shall see God. Those who are not holy will not see God. In in other words, they will not receive an eternal reward. They will not receive it in the presence of God because they will not see God. In another great book on holiness, which is in our library, by the way, is entitled Simply Holiness by J.C. Ryle. 19th century preacher, and uh, he says this. He says, we must be holy 
Because without holiness on earth, we shall never be prepared to enjoy heaven. Heaven is a holy place. And then he says this, suppose for a moment that you were allowed to enter into heaven without holiness. What would you do there? He said, what possible enjoyment could you feel there? To which of all the saints would you join yourself with? By whose side would you sit down? Their pleasures are not your pleasures. Their tastes are not your tastes. Their character is not your character. How could you possibly be happy if you had not been holy on earth? Read that book. It's a really good one. Very, very convicting. Another classic book, The Diary and Journal of David Brainerd, which happens to be the first biography ever printed in America. Very important work, which also happens to be in our library. Huh, interesting. You should check it out. One of my favorites, in fact. He was a Presbyterian pastor and early missionary to the Native Americans in the state of what is now New Jersey. Uh, He was describing one day, uh, the Lord's Day, he was trying to take a rest from his ministry, and somehow he found himself uh, trapped, if you will, with the company of these two other men who were very worldly and who had no desire for God, and all they wanted to do was talk about their evil business all the day while he was trying to devote himself to the Lord. And here's what he had to say about it. He said, oh, what a hell it would be to live with such men for eternity. He wasn't saying that in jest. In other words, he agrees with J.C. Ryle, oh, I would hate to have to spend an eternity with a bunch of unholy men because we have nothing in common. If you do not pursue holiness, Scripture says you will not see God because you won't want to see Him because it will only be fear and, and no sense of a reunion with the Lord and with His people. This exhortation is given to all the members of God's church again, not just to the leaders. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Because we know that sin so easily entangles us, as we read earlier in Romans or Hebrews chapter 12, we also know that it so easily entangles our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we see it happening, we ought to help to help remove that hardness of heart and that deception, praying for them, counseling with them, speaking truth to them when they don't want to hear it, correction, even rebuke when necessary. If we really love our brothers, he says this is what we ought to do. If someone's running off the course, you would think, hey, uh, you're missing, this is the race here, right? Even if they're like, oh, no, shut up, I'm going this way. That's, that's what sin is, right? We must run for peace and purity together as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the second thing. Here's the third. We must also run from bitterness and defilement. Second part of verse 15, the author says, we also ought to see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble in the midst of the church. Once again, as he did last week, he's returning to the realm of horticulture. Instead of talking about the fruit of peace that comes through uh, discipline, Now he's talking about the spread of noxious weeds in the church through evil as it spreads so quickly. Uh, At first, uh, a foreign root may infiltrate uh, an area of pristine plant growth undetected, but soon enough its vines are spreading in every direction, choking out the life of the good crops. 
and instead producing bitter and poisonous fruit, it happens very, very quickly. You can't see it at first because it's underground. But then it starts to produce its crop. Something has to happen. Something has to give. As we run toward peace and purity, we're also told to run from this bitter root, this bitterness and this stinking that comes into the church, choking out good fruit. Unfortunately, it's impossible to eradicate all weeds before they can gain ground. I, I, don't, I, I try in my yard. It's impossible. They always find a way to come back every year. But you have to uproot them before they start taking over the rest of your yard. Again, it's the same way with the church. You cannot allow these things to go unchecked. They will spoil they will poison, they will rip apart a church, as Pastor Mark read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 29. Listen again what Moses says. He says, beware. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of other nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I'm safe, though he walks in the stubbornness and the sinfulness of his heart. This will lead, he says, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. If you don't deal with the person who is the bitter root in the church, it'll wipe out the church. And it happens very quickly. Moses is not saying this hypothetically. It happened numerous times in the nation of Israel. Same thing happens in the church. The author of Hebrews is not speaking hypothetically here. There will come bitter roots. Every church, every church, eventually will have a bitter root that seeks to grow and to take hold of that particular church. Every single church has to face it. We have to be able to confront it. Because if we don't, they will turn away many people from running, from seeking Christ by faith. So just as we're called to look out for one another as we're running, we're also called to watch out for those who are seeking to hinder us from running. There will always be some who come into the church purposely to stop the race, to stop us from growing, to stop us from maturing to stop us from loving. Romans 16, 17, Paul says, Brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Titus 3.10, again, Paul says of those of bitter root, he says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. In other words, he's saying very kindly, excommunicate that man. Because he has no respect for authority, no respect for holiness, no respect for peace. All he wants is to hear his big mouth talk and to destroy because he's not right with God. In a similar manner, there are others who are not necessarily divisive in a very obvious way. They're not necessarily mean-spirited. They're not necessarily just shooting their mouth off left and right, but they are nevertheless defiling their church through suspect doctrines and shady practices. They often come across as the really nice ones that everyone is so fooled by. 
because they plead grace when they ought to be confessing and repenting of their sins. The author of Hebrews speaks of this in verse 16. He says, of those who are sexually immoral and unholy, like Esau, who gave up his inheritance in order to appease his flesh. Similar to Adam and Eve, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, they gave up paradise for what? A rotten piece of fruit. And now Esau is giving up his eternal inheritance for a bowl of soup. It sounds so stupid to us. But anytime someone is going for the things of this earth in opposition to the things of heaven, living according to the flesh rather than according to the Spirit, it's the same concept. The Apostle Paul speaks of those who live according to the flesh and who set their minds on the things of the flesh. He says of such people, to them nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. In his epistles, Paul says again and again, those who live in such a way will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. In fact, he says it on four separate occasions in four different letters. He says, if someone is walking according to the flesh, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not any more plain. Very, very plain. And each time he gives a long list of people who are walking according to the flesh, sexual morality is always at the top of that list. Always along with greed and idolatry and drunkenness and all these other things, all these physical desires that have become the idol of the heart for individuals. He says to us, do not listen to people who do, who do this. Do not even eat with such a people who bear the name of Christian, who call themselves a brother but yet are not acting like a brother, and yet we try to be nice to them. He says, do not do that. If someone is under the discipline of the church, they're not walking according to God's ways. You're not to treat them as if they're a brother anymore. You're to treat them as if you need to evangelize them. It's a different way in which we're to handle these things altogether. But we, especially if they're in the church, and it, yet ha it hasn't yet come to the attention of the leadership of the church that this person needs to be dealt with, it's your job as brothers and sisters in Christ to point it out, to say, Something's wrong with brother so-and-so. He's walking in pure sin. Nobody wants to do that naturally, I don't think. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen it happen. It happened in such a helpful way when a brother or sister in Christ notices that one of their fellow church members is not walking right, and we don't see it. And there are times we can't see it as elders. I may not be in that pocket of friendships. I may not see what's going on. And all of a sudden, someone says, hey, I have a great concern for so-and-so. Let me tell you, this is what's going on. And all of a sudden, it comes to our attention, and we can address it before it becomes something extremely bitter and poisonous. Not only for them, but for the life of the church as well. They will rip apart a church in that way if it's not addressed. Revelation 2 and 3, it's interesting I love Revelation. It's a great book. I love the other books too, just in case you're wondering. Jesus commends the churches or rebukes them in those first couple of chapters based on a number of things, but one thing that he's continually examining them on is how they respond to defiling practices and false doctrine in their church. What do they do with it? Are they seeking to root it out, or are they just letting it fester and continuing to grow? 
Uh, you'll know.